Let us bow our heads for prayer, shall we? Oh, Lord, thank you so much for the beautiful song we just listened to and the powerful message it brings to our hearts. For, Lord, we live in a world full of darkness, a world full of death and decay and corruption. But we thank you, Lord, that, that you, are, you are our light in the darkness. And soon and very soon you're coming to take us to a place where there will be no more night, no more darkness, no more suffering, no more death. Lord, we've come to this place tonight because we want to be ready for that special day. And so I pray, dear God, that as we open your word, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us in a personal and intimate way, that we will be better prepared for your return. Please be with us now, Lord. I pray, dear God, that you'll strengthen my voice and that you would give us all ears to hear what the Spirit would have to say. And I pray, Lord, that as we deal with this very solemn message, that you would convict us afresh of our desperate need of Jesus. And I pray that tonight we would see Christ more clearly than ever before. In Jesus' name we pray this prayer. Amen. <clears throat> tonight, as we study Revelation's final showdown, we're going to look at an amazing prophecy that puts eternal realities into sharp perspective. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 20, where we read God's plan to deal with the greatest criminal in the whole universe, the one that has instigated every crime and every sin that has ever been committed. We're dealing with Satan himself. The Bible tells us what God is going to do with that old devil. In Revelation chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, Revelation 20 and verse 1, if you're there and if you're ready to study the Bible tonight, would you please let me know by saying amen? amen. It says, And I saw another angel, excuse me, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan, and bound him, how long? <clears throat> a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loose a little season. So here we find in prophecy, God's plan to deal with Satan, the greatest criminal of all. The Bible says that he's going to be bound for 1,000 years, a prison sentence of a millennium is going to be handed down to him, and he is going to serve every year in full. But then after a thousand years passes by, he's going to be paroled for a short time so that the universe might be able to see that even after having a thousand years to think about all of his crimes, that he is still unrepentant and unchanged. He is still the same old devil. And the Bible says that he's bound in a place called the bottomless pit, and there he will remain for a thousand years. This is the prophecy we will understand clearly tonight by the end of this presentation. We're dealing with this thousand-year prison sentence of Satan and the eradication and annihilation of sin and evil and suffering. And the first question I want to ask is this, what event begins the 1,000-year prison sentence of Satan? What event begins this 
prison time? Well, friends, all we have to do to answer that question is read the context. The chapter before Revelation 20 describes the event that usher in the 1,000 years, and we're going to see that it's none other than the second coming of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. In other words, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to throw that devil in jail. Can you say amen? We read in Revelation 19, and we studied this before, so we're not going to take the time to read it again. But you read the whole chapter when you get home. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, describes the return of Christ on a white horse, not because he's literally coming on a white horse. We learned the symbol of the white horse represents triumph and, 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 and righteousness. A king coming to conquer the territory which belongs to him, coming triumphantly, coming righteously. And that's the description of the return of Jesus. He is coming back to conquer this world that has been hijacked by Satan. And the devil is going to be thrown in jail for doing such a thing. And so we find that that which begins the thousand years, that which begins chapter 20 is chapter 19, the return of King Jesus. And I want us to review just a few verses of what the Bible says concerning the second coming of Christ. In Revelation 1 verse 7, we learn that it's not a secret rapture, but it's a visible rapture. The Bible tells us, behold, he comes with clouds and some eyes shall see him. Is that what it says? Every eye shall see him, and they also which did what? <clears throat> Pierced him. So notice, friends, when Jesus comes, no one is going to have to need to tell you about it because you're going to see it with your own eyes. It's going to be a visible coming. He's coming with every angel of, in heaven. He's coming with the glory and power of his Father. It's going to be a rapture, yes, but not a secret one. It's going to be an amazing, glorious, climactic rapture where every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. And I want you to keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. Jesus also said in Matthew 16, 27, please write it down. Jesus said, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will do what? Reward each according to his work. So when Jesus comes... He's coming with the angels, the glory of his Father, and he's also coming with rewards according to individuals' works. Question, what rewards or what kind of rewards is Jesus coming with? He told us very clearly in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. You see, friends, when you read the Bible, you just ask the question, and the Bible actually answers the question directly because the Bible has the answers. Amen? And Jesus told us clearly what type of rewards he's coming with. In John 5, 28, 29, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. Now, friends, when it says the hour is coming, what tense is that? That's future, right? In other words, the hour has not yet come. It's coming. It's still a futuristic event. Well, what hour is he referring to? In the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. We learned last night that when a person dies, they don't go straight to heaven or hell, but they go into the grave and they sleep and they rest until the second coming of Christ when the Lord Jesus comes. And it says, the hour is coming. It's not yet here, but it's coming when all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of what? Life. And they that have done evil unto the resurrection of? These are the different rewards that Jesus is coming with, friends. Rewards according to individuals' works. It says that there are two different resurrections. The resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation. And it says that all that are in the graves, which shows that 
when you die, you don't go straight to heaven or hell, but rather all of us, whether you're wicked or you're righteous, whether you serve God or serve Him not, when we die, we're all going to the same place at first. We're going in the grave where we will remain until one of these two resurrections. Either we're going to come up in the first resurrection, that is the resurrection of life, or the second resurrection, which is the resurrection of damnation. And then notice in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, it, it says the same thing. Many of those who sleep, who do, who do what? What is, the, what is sleep referring to? Who, who are dead, friends. All those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So again, we find that, that, that when you die, you go into the grave. You, you go to the dust, but then you're going to wake. But there's two different resurrections. Resurrection of life, or the resurrection of shame and damnation. I want you to keep that in mind, friends. There are two different resurrections, the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. And we're going to find out tonight that these two resurrections happen on either side of the 1,000-year period. The first resurrection, that is the resurrection of life, will take place at the beginning of the 1,000-year period when Jesus comes again and throws the devil in jail. And then Satan will be in prison for a thousand years. And then at the end of it, when he's loosed from the prison, it's then that the second resurrection takes place. That is the resurrection of damnation where the wicked will come up in that resurrection. Two different resurrections. In fact, notice what it says as we go back to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 6. It says, notice what it says concerning those who come up in the first resurrection. It says, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the what number resurrection? The first resurrection on such the what number death? The second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him how long? <clears throat> so we find that the first resurrection, that is the resurrection of, the, of life, those who are blessed and holy come up in that one, that will take place in the beginning of the 1,000 years. And it says that those who come up in the first resurrection will not experience the second death. Now, friends, if there's a second death, there also has to be a, a first death, right? You see, those who come up in the first resurrection has, had experienced the first death. You can't resurrect until you first die. So they did die the first death, and then they're coming up in the first resurrection. But praise God, they're not going to die the second time. Why? Because God gives them everlasting immortal life. Can you say Amen. They have the gift of eternal life. And so even though they died in this world, they come up in that first resurrection, they're not going to die the second time. The second death will have no power over the people of God. Now, let's explain a little bit more what the difference is between the first death and the second death. You see, friends, the first death, death is the results of living in a sinful world. It is the, it is the what? It is the results you see, all of us, whether we're righteous or wicked, we're all eventually going to die the first death. The first death claims us all because we live in a sinful world. We're eventually going to get old and die. That's the first death. It's the results of sin. But the second death is a lot more serious. The second death is the penalty for sin, and only the wicked are going to experience that second death. They're the ones that are going to die the second time. And so, friends, when we think about the first resurrection, and those who come up in that first resurrection not dying again, 
it's a no-brainer, friends. I want to be a part of that first resurrection if I die before Jesus comes. Amen? Those who come up there will not die the second time. You see, the first death is the results of sin. The second death is the penalty of sin. It's a permanent death, and we'll unpack that more in detail tonight. But notice, what does it take for us to come up in the first resurrection? The Bible says that we must be blessed and holy. But here's the problem. Because of sin, we're cursed, and because of sin, we are unholy. There's, not, there's nothing holy about us. There's none righteous, no, not one, the Bible says. So the only way we can be blessed and holy is if we have received by faith the blessed and holy one, Jesus Christ, into our hearts and our lives. Amen? That's the only way we're going to have a chance, friends. It's not by our works or our righteousness. There is no righteousness in us. It's only as we receive by faith the righteousness of Christ, the blessed and holy one, as, as we allow him to live out his life in us and through us. And that's my decision tonight. Isn't it yours? And so they come up in the first resurrection. They're not going to die again. They're going to they're have everlasting life. And they're going to reign with Christ for 1,000 years. So note very carefully, friends, that the first resurrection takes place at the beginning of the 1,000 years. In fact, the Apostle Paul said the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Please write it down. We read this before. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. What? That's the first resurrection. And who comes up? Only those who died in Christ. It's the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus comes back. The trumpet sounds. The Lord himself is going to shout. The angels will be singing. The dead in Christ are going to rise up out of those sleepy graves. And then notice, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord on that great getting up morning when the trumpet blasts, graves are going to burst open, and families that have been separated by death are reunited in life, never to be separated again. And as we ascend to meet the Lord in the air, both the, 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 the righteous who are dead, they come alive, and the righteous who are living in the last days, they also ascend to meet the Lord in the air. And we go to heaven together at the same time. Friends, our loved ones who have passed away, they are in a better place. But that better place is not in heaven. It's in the ground sleeping, awaiting the resurrection. And we're going to experience the joy and bliss and surprise of heaven at the same time. And then it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52 and 53, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the when? At the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on what? Immortality. So, friends, tell me, when does the soul receive immortality? At the last trump, when the Lord Jesus returns. It's then that we'll receive immortality. We do not have it beforehand. Immortality is a gift from God given at the resurrection. And that's going to be a wonderful day. I can't wait for it. How about you? There's not going to be any more uh, cancer or disease or sickness. No more diabetes and uh, as asthma and arthritis and allergies. I'm so thankful for that. Today, my man, I'm, I, my, my nose was running all day today. We won't have that problem in heaven. Amen? We'll have brand new bodies when this mortal will put on immortality 
and the corruptible will put on incorruption. This, my friends, is the first resurrection. It is the resurrection of life that Jesus promises to those who put their trust in him. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? Now that's review. We already studied that. Now let's review very quickly what happens to the wicked when Jesus comes again. Do they get a second chance, friends? No. We've already received our second chance. Every day we wake up is another chance to be ready. And so we learned very clearly the other night that when Jesus comes, probation is closed already. Destinies are already decided. And what happens to the wicked? It says in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the, what is this right here? Brightness of what? His coming. You see, the coming of Christ is going to be so bright and so powerful and so glorious that the wicked are going to hide from his presence and they're going to be consumed by the glory of God. There's no such thing as a second chance by the time Jesus comes. Probation is closed and destinies are forever decided. And then notice in Jeremiah, it describes the same event in these words. Please write it down. Jeremiah 25 verse 33, it says, And the slain of the Lord shall be at that day from one end of the what? The earth, even to the other end of the earth. They, talking about those who are slain by the coming of Christ, it says they shall not be lamented. That means no one is going to weep or cry over them. Neither gathered nor buried, they shall be dung upon the ground. So we find that when Jesus comes, the wicked are slain by the brightness of the glory of God, and their bodies are going to be uh, strewn on the top part of the earth from one end to the other. No one is going to weep over the death of the wicked. No one will gather their dead bodies and have a funeral service for them. They're just going to be there on the top side of the earth. And friends, why do you think that is? Well, think about it. The reason why no one is there crying over them or having a funeral service is because no one's there. Because remember, where's the righteous during this time period? They're in heaven, and where's the wicked? They're simply destroyed. And so you can, in summary, you can divide the whole world into four different groups when Jesus comes. The righteous dead, the righteous living, the wicked living, and the wicked dead. Let's review what happens to each one of these groups when Jesus comes. Number one, the righteous dead are resurrected in the first resurrection. They ascend to meet the Lord in the air. What about those who are alive in the last days? The righteous living, they also ascend to meet the Lord in the air, and we go to heaven the same time for the next 1,000 years. Now, the wicked who are living when Jesus comes are slain by the brightness of the glory of God, and then the wicked that are dead when Jesus comes, they simply remain dead until the second resurrection that takes place at the end of the 1,000-year prison sentence of Satan. And so the reason why no one is going to cry over the wicked and have a funeral service is because all the righteous are in heaven and all the wicked are simply dead. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? amen. Now, having said that, it's important for us to understand that when Jesus comes back the second time, there is going to be a small portion of dead, uh, wicked dead people that will, will be resurrected momentarily to see the, 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 the one that they pierced with their own eyes. You remember we read that in Revelation 1 verse 7? It says, every eye shall see him, they also which pierced him. 
In other words, those who were the instigators of the crucifixion when Jesus was in this world, those people who led out in the, in the condemning of the Messiah and nailing him to the cross, those individuals who are lost, who are wicked, will be momentarily resurrected, and they will see the coming of Jesus with their own eyes, realizing that the one they thought was a, was a criminal was indeed the Messiah, the sent of God. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 64. Please write it down as we connect the Scriptures together. In Matthew 26, 64, Jesus said to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish hierarchy, those who wanted his death, he said to them, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and glory. And when will that happen? It will happen when he comes in that, when he comes the second time, they're resurrected momentarily. And they'll realize that they indeed rejected the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And that shows the very serious thing, friends, of rejecting Jesus. Now, notice at this time, Satan now is thrown into the bottomless pit for the next 1,000 years. And he remains there serving his prison sentence in full. We go now back to Revelation 20. If you're, you're there, you can look in your own Bible. It's also on the screen. Let's read again in verse 2 and 3. And he laid hold upon the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a 1,000 years. And cast him where again? Into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till how long? <clears throat> the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed for a little season. And so we find Jesus comes, all the righteous are taken to heaven, all the wicked are, are, are slain. And now Satan is thrown into the bottomless pit. He is bound for the next 1,000 years. Now, what does it mean when it says that Satan is bound by a chain? Can Satan, who is a supernatural being, be bound by a literal chain? No, friends. You see, this chain that Satan is bound with is a chain of his circumstances. And the reason why we know that is because if you read the book of Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, you'll find that there was a man who was possessed by Satan, and people tried to bind him with literal chains. But this demon-possessed man was so strong that he broke the chains. And so think about it. If a demon-possessed man cannot be bound with a literal chain, how much less can Satan, who is a supernatural being that can walk through walls, how much less can he be bound by a literal chain? You see, this chain is a chain of circumstance. A chain of what? In other words, his circumstances are, are limiting him and restricting him from doing his work of destruction and deception and temptation. For the next 1,000 years, his circumstances are such that he's no one to tempt and no one to deceive. It's kind of like when someone asks you to do something and you're super busy and you just have stuff going on and you say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't, I can't come, man. I'm, I'm just all tied up. Have you ever said that before? I'm all tied up. What do you mean when you say that? Are you tied up with a literal rope or chain? No, when you say I'm all tied up, that simply means your circumstances are limiting you from doing what you're being invited to do. And that's the expression we see here. Satan can walk through walls. This chain that he's bound with is a chain of circumstance. Why? Because for the next thousand years, he has no one to tempt and no one to deceive. All he can do is sit there and think and cogitate upon all the crimes he had committed. 
And why does he have no one to temper deceive? Because remember, friends, where, are, where is everyone during this time period? All the righteous are in heaven and all the wicked are simply dead. And so now Satan and his evil angels, they have some time to think. They've been, they've been working overtime nonstop, deceiving and destroying. But now God is going to give them some time off for their bad behavior to think about the part that they played in this terrible controversy between good and evil. And the Bible says that the, the place where they will, uh, uh, um, the place that there will be in the thousand years is the bottomless pit. Now, we need to understand what that means. Where, what and where is this bottomless pit? Is this a pit that has no bottom, that Satan just continues to fall and fall and fall? Well, friends, if we look this expression up in the original Greek language, we get some insight as to what exactly the bottomless pit is. If you look it up in the Greek, it's the word abusos. Can you say that? <clears throat> which is where we get the English word abyss. And the word abusos literally means a place without form and void. A place without form and void. And so for the next thousand years, Satan is bound by circumstances in a place without form and void. And friends, this description, the bottomless pit without form and void, is a fit description of planet Earth when Jesus comes and this world is destroyed. In fact, I want us to notice, even before God created this world, the description of our planet was an abyss, a bottomless pit. Notice in Genesis 1 and verse 2, the Bible says, And the earth was what? Without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Planet earth was without form and void before God came and spoke life and light into existence. It was like a bottomless pit, not a literal pit with no bottom, but rather a place without form and void. There was a great emptiness and a great darkness that covered the earth before the presence of God came and spoke His words of life. And by the way, friends, as I bring out this personal application, this is always the condition whenever God's presence is absent from a place. Whenever God's presence is not there, the, the condition is without form and void. It is the fit con condition of our own lives and our own hearts when we say no to the Holy Spirit, when we ignore the voice of God. Before God comes into our life, our hearts are like a bottomless pit, without form, void. There's an emptiness within. And what we try to do is fill that emptiness with the things of this life, with the pleasures of sin, with the attractions and distractions, distractions of earthly pleasures. But friends, no matter how much we try to fill that void, that emptiness in our hearts, it could never be satisfied by the things of the world. It's like a bottomless pit. You fill it and you try to, you try to put things in there, but it's never filled. You know why? Because only God can fulfill the emptiness within. He's the only one, friends. I've experienced it myself. As, as I shared before, I used to be a druggie, chasing the world and burning up my brain cells and doing crazy things. What I was doing, friends, was trying to fill the void, the emptiness in my life. And I was stimulated, but I wasn't satisfied. Sin stimulates us for the moment, but it never satisfies us for the long run. Only Jesus can satisfy. Can you say amen? And so the same God, listen, that came to the world when it was without form and void and said, let there be light, 
and there was light, that same God wants to come to the emptiness and void of our lives. And he wants to speak his wonderful words of life into our hearts. God is wanting to say to us, let there be light in your heart. And when we receive that word by faith, there is light. Can you say amen? And there's a fulfillment. There's a satisfaction. There, there, there's that the emptiness is finally fulfilled. And just like the psalmist says, he anoints my head with oil and my cup runneth over. In other words, it's always filled and it's overflowing where, to the point where your life is now a blessing to others. You're always filled with the anointing of God, the Holy Spirit, the joy of the Lord. And that joy and that happiness and peace just overflows and it touches and affects all those who come into your presence. I want my life to be like that, don't you? Amen? And so, friends, when the Bible tells us that Satan is bound in the bottomless pit, it's simply referring to planet Earth that has been destroyed by the second coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus comes, this world will turn back into an abyss, a bottomless pit. Notice what the Bible says in Jeremiah 4, verse 23 through 26. Jeremiah saw this time period in vision, and notice how he describes it. I beheld the, the earth, the what? And lo, it was what? Without form and void. That's the, 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 that's the word abusos, the Hebrew equivalent of it, without form and void. And the heavens, they had no light. And I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was what? Why did Jeremiah not see any man during this time period? Because remind me, where is everyone at during this time period? All the righteous are in heaven, and all the wicked are simply dead, and therefore he saw no man. And all the birds of heaven were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. And so when the, G the Lord Jesus comes back at the presence of the Lord, the, the, this world is going to turn back into a great abyss. The cities are going to be broken down. And thus Satan will remain here on this desolate planet, the place that he called his territory. He will have to stay here for the next thousand years with no one to tempt, no one to deceive, bound by his circumstances. All he can do is think about all the crimes that he has committed. And here's his beginning. Or here's the beginning of his reign of darkness. You see, remember, friends, in the controversy between good and evil, Satan wanted to be ruler over the world. Isn't that right? He wanted absolute control over this planet. And so now God gives him his chance to have full control. Why? So that the universe might be able to see what kind of kingdom Satan's kingdom will be when he has absolute control and authority. And lo and behold, it is a kingdom of darkness and desolation and destruction and decay and death. And this is the fate of those who want to be subjects of the kingdom of darkness. Friends, why in the world would we want to serve the devil, friends, when, he has, when his kingdom is a desolate kingdom? You see, Satan wants to be ruler of the world. He wants to be God. He wants to be the creator. So now he has his chance to prove, to see if he is God. If you're God, Satan, recreate the world. If you are God, let's see you create light. But the devil can't even create a flashlight. Can you say amen? He's there in this desolate earth for the next 1,000 years with all of his evil angels thinking about the crimes that he has committed. And friends, either we're going to be with him 
or we're going to be with Jesus during this time period. I'll cast my vote with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, what about the righteous? What are they doing during the thousand years? Well, they're in heaven, of course, but what are they doing specifically? We go back to Revelation 20, now verse 6. It says, They shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So the righteous are reigning with Jesus in heaven for 1,000 years. And what are they doing there? Verse 4 tells us, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them. And judgment was committed to them. What was committed to the, to the, to the saints, the people of God? It says judgment was committed to them. What does this mean? Well, friends, for the first 1,000 years in heaven, the saints will be able to judge or examine the judgment of God. This is in harmony with what the Apostle Paul said. He said in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3, write it down. He said to the New Testament church, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? Who's going to judge the world? Know you not that we shall judge angels? Well, when is it that the saints are going to judge the world and judge the fallen angels? They're going to do it for the first 1,000 years in heaven. The saints will be able to judge and go over the records of how God dealt with this world and with the fallen angels. Now, many people are wondering, well, why is judgment committed to the saints? Listen, let me explain this. It's not that the saints are determining who's saved and lost. No, friends, that's already determined by the time Jesus comes. When it says that judgment is committed to the saints, it's, it's saying that God is going to give the saints or the righteous an opportunity to examine how God judged the world. In other words, they're going to be able to audit the books. And here's the reason. When we get to heaven, we're going to have three questions. How many? We're going to have a lot of questions, actually. But at least these three questions will be foremost on our mind. Oh, excuse me. Not three questions. Three surprises. That's what I meant to say. Three surprises when we get to heaven. The first, and by the way, there are, you can also say there are questions, too. The first surprise is that you're there. Amen. And it's going to be wonderful, amen? The second surprise is that there's going to be, you're going to be looking for people who you thought surely would be in heaven. And you look for them, and they're not there. And you're surprised by it. And you're going to ask the question, God, where is sister so-and-so? Where is pastor so-and-so? Where is Bible worker so-and-so? Where is this, this, this person that gave me Bible studies, this person that knocked on my door, this person that was praying for me and that preached to me? Where is this person? You thought surely they would be there, but they're missing. They're lost. And you're going to have questions why. And so what God is going to do, he's going to allow you to look at the record in, of the judgment. He's going to, he will allow you to look at the record of that individual's life. And we will see that, you know, God, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And we can deceive one another with the nice clothes we wear and the outward demeanor that we carry ourselves with. But God reads the heart, friends. And while outwardly that person may have looked pious and holy, we'll see that they're lost because perhaps on the inside, in the secret times of their life, there are things that they would not surrender to the Lord Jesus. And we'll see why they're lost. I want you to notice, friends, the Bible tells us very clearly in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, therefore judge nothing before the time, which implies that there will come a time in which we can judge. But right now, we're not to judge one another. Amen? Right now, we don't know each other's hearts. We can't read the heart. Only God can. 
So the apostle says, judge nothing before the time until when the Lord come. Why? Because when he comes for the first thousand years, we'll have the opportunity to judge or to examine the judgment. Are you with me on that? And notice what happens. Until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the what? Hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. In other words, during the first thousand years when Jesus comes, the saints will be able to go over the records of the judgment, and thus the counsels of the hearts, individuals' hearts will be made known. It's in that time period that Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 14 is going to be fulfilled, where it says, God shall bring every work into judgment with every what? Secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. We're going to go over the records of the lives of individuals, and we will see why people are lost. But not only that, we're going to see every opportunity God gave that person to be saved. We're going to see every prayer that had been prayed on behalf of that person, every invitation that that person received to be saved, and we will see, friends, that God did everything he could to save that individual. But you see, God is a God of love. He's not a God of force. So he will not force someone's will. We will choose our own destiny, and the record will show that despite the pleadings, the invitations of God, people chose otherwise. And when we see the justice and the fairness and the mercy of God demonstrated in the record of that person's life, we will exclaim, okay, God, I understand you are a merciful and a just judge. And perhaps we'll exclaim something like this, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Does that make sense, friends? Now, I told you there was three surprises. The first surprise, you're there. Second prize, people you thought would be there are missing. You're going to wonder why. Third surprise, there's going to be people in heaven who were such rascals on earth that you wrote them off as hopeless. You said, man, that person is not going to be. And lo and behold, there they are in heaven. And you're going to look at them, and you're going to be like, God, are you sure about that one? <laughs> oh, God, I remember that guy. Oh, he was bad news. What's he doing here? <laughs> And God will show the record of that person's life, and we will see that even though they may have made mistakes in the past, we will see that some point in that person's life, they came to Jesus, they cast their wretchedness upon the righteousness of Christ, and they're in heaven saved by the grace of God. I can imagine Stephen getting to heaven, seeing Paul, and saying, God, what's he doing here? <laughs> you remember the story, right? Because Saul, who became Paul, was the one that, that led out in the stoning of Stephen. Now, Stephen did not see that Paul, Saul, was converted. And so he's going to be like, and then God will show the record, and, and Stephen is going to give Paul a great big hug. Can you say amen? It's going to be wonderful. And so the record for the first thousand years, every question is going to be answered, friends, concerning how God dealt with the human race. And in every single case, we will see that God was always consistently merciful and consistently just and fair. And if people are lost, they lost because they have chosen to be lost, despite the mercy and the fairness of God. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? amen. Now, also, we might be having personal questions for God. 
God, why did you allow me to get diagnosed with cancer? Why did you allow my, little, my, my, my child to die? Why did you allow that terrible accident to take place? You know, some of these questions that we don't really have answers to. We will see why God, He didn't cause it, of course, but why God allowed certain things to take place in our life and how there was something good that God would bring out of those situations. And so for the first thousand years in heaven, every single question as to what happened in this world is going to be answered. That's why God gives us the first thousand years to settle and to make sure that every question is answered. Now, now let me go a little bit deeper and explain to you why or what the purpose of judgment is. In the purpose of judgment is to exonerate God from the false accusations of Satan. Remember we studied before that we are in the midst of a great controversy between good and evil and how Satan, the arch deceiver, has blamed God for being unloving, unmerciful, and unjust. And basically Satan is throwing false accusations against God. And so the purpose of judgment is to exonerate God, to vindicate his character in proving that Satan's accusations have no foundation and that he is a liar and a murderer. And so there are actually three different phases of judgment. How many phases? <clears throat> and each phase happens in three different times, and the purpose of it is to exonerate and vindicate the character of God before three different audiences. The first phase of judgment is what we call the investigative judgment. The what judgment? We studied that the, the, the third night out here. We learned that the investigative judgment ha uh, happens before Jesus comes, and according to prophecy, it began in heaven in the year 1844, and it will continue until the close of probation just before Jesus comes, where God in heaven is going over the records of the lives of individuals, and the angels and the universe looks on and that will exonerate God before the angels and the universe. You see, friends, before the Lord brings a whole bunch of redeemed sinners into heaven, he first has to let the angels and the universe know that it's okay to do this, that they have truly repented, that, 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 that they have experienced a conversion in their lives, and that if God brings them to heaven, they're not going to start the controversy all over again. And so before Jesus comes, the investigative judgment will clear God's name before the angels in the universe and show that it is merciful and just to bring the redeemed to heaven. The second phase of judgment takes place during the thousand years in heaven, and that's what we call the examination of judgment. It's when the saints, the righteous, go over the records, and when they see the justice and fairness and mercy of God and how he dealt with the wicked, that will exonerate God's character and clear God's name before the righteous in heaven. And then the third phase of judgment we call the executive judgment. It will take place at the end of the 1,000 years, at the second resurrection. And this phase of judgment will exonerate and vindicate the character of God before the wicked just before they are destroyed in hellfire. And so before Satan and the evil angels and wickedness can be finally eradicated from the universe, God's character is going to be vindicated and his reputation will, will be exonerated before all. And only when that happens, when Satan's accusations are proven absolutely false, can God then exterminate 
evil for good, and no one is going to question the justice and the fairness of the punishment of sin, which is eternal annihilation. And so the purpose of judgment is basically to vindicate the character of God. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? And so we find that during the thousand years, all the righteous are in heaven going over the records, and Satan with his evil angels are bound on a desolate earth with a chain of circumstance for 1,000 years. Well, would this be the end of the controversy? Not at all. Notice what it says in Jeremiah 4, verse 27. The whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a what? Not a full end yet. Why? Because notice what happens now at the end of the 1,000 years. We go back to Revelation 20, now verse 7 and verse 8. The Bible says, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be what? Loosed out of his prison and shall go out to do what? Deceive the nations. So at the end of the thousand years, Satan is now loosed from his prison and he goes about his work of deceiving the nations. Well, what nations? I thought all the righteous were in heaven and all the wicked dead. What nations are, is he deceiving? Aha! You remember at the end of the thousand years, the second resurrection takes place. And notice what it says in verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So at the end of the thousand years, the wicked dead, they live again. This is the resurrection of damnation. They come up in that second resurrection at the end of the thousand years. They live again, and thus Satan now goes out to deceive those nations. And so we find, uh, once again, the first resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous, takes place at the beginning of the thousand years when the Lord Jesus comes the second time. Then Satan is thrown into prison, and uh, he is uh, bound on a desolate earth. The saints are in heaven. And then at the second resurrection, we find that the final judgment of the wicked will take place. When that happens, sin will be eradicated and annihilated from God's universe once and for all. And so when the second resurrection takes place, Satan now has people to deceive. Thus, he's loosed from his chain of circumstance. He goes out to deceive those nations that were, de- that were deceived before. And I believe that one of his deceptions, he'll probably say to them, I am the one that resurrected you. I am your God. I am your life giver. I am the one that gave you life, and you must follow me and do as I say. And all the wicked, the nations, are going to be deceived once again. And friends, the reason why God does this is to show that even after having a thousand years to think about all he has done, the devil is still unchanged. He is still the same old devil. And then notice what happens this, during this time. Revelation 21, 2 Then I, John, saw the holy city, what's the holy city called? New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the New Jerusalem, the city of God, filled with all the righteous saints who have been there for the last thousand years, now descend from heaven to earth at the end of the thousand years. God is moving his capital city from heaven to earth, The drama of the ages is coming to a close. The end of the great controversy is at hand. This is the final showdown between good and evil. And as the city of God descends, it touches the earth. And notice what happens, what the wicked will try to do. Revelation 20, now verse 9, it says, They went up on the breath of the earth, 
and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now, friends, I want you to picture this scene in your mind because these words are, will, lit, will be fulfilled literally. As the city of God, New Jerusalem, descends, filled with all the righteous saints, it descends to the earth. Then the wicked, after, res after they're resurrected in the second resurrection, they now surround the city of God. Satan is there deceiving them. He's there as the master general. And he points to the city, and he says, this is our last chance to take the city. And as the wicked come close to the walls, they now try to take by force that which God once offered to them in love. You see, all of them had an opportunity to be on the inside, but they were too busy when the opportunity came. They were too caught up in this life. You see, friends, if the devil cannot make us bad, he'll make us busy. Either way, he has us. And those individuals were distracted, and so when God offered to them salvation in heaven, they didn't want it, but oh, how they want it now. But they've waited until it was too late, friends. They try to take by force that which God once offered to them in love. And friends, I can imagine, this is so dramatic. Everyone who's ever lived is present here. All the righteous from Adam to the end of time are on the inside of the city of God. All the wicked from wicked Cain to the end of time, they are also there. They're on the outside of the walls. God is there, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All the angels are there. Satan is there. And the universe is looking on. It's the final showdown between good and evil. And friends, I can imagine as the wicked come close to the walls of the new Jerusalem, they press up. And friends, did you know that the walls of the city of Jerusalem are transparent? You can see right through the wall. And I can imagine a husband on the outside. He gets close to the wall. He looks in, and there's his godly wife on the inside, the wife that prayed for him and always invited him to church and was so sweet, but he was too busy, and he, he'd rather stay at home and watch television, and he just didn't care about spiritual things. And now he is separated by a wall. Know oh, how he wants to be on the inside. I can imagine young people on the outside of the wall, and they look in, and there their godly parents are on the inside, the parents that, that prayed for them and, and tried to teach them the right way. But these youngsters said, they thought to themselves, I'm too cool for my parents' religion. And oh, how they wish they were on the inside with mommy and daddy. Oh, how they wish they would have taken God seriously. But now it's too late. They're separated by a wall. Brother on the outside, sister on the inside. Well, friends, which side of the wall are you going to be on? It's either we're going to be on the outside looking in or we're going to be on the inside looking out. It is my hope and my prayer that every single one of us will be on the inside with Jesus where it's safe. Amen? Yeah. There's no third, third option, friends. It's either we're in or we're out. It's either we're going to be saved or we're going to be lost. And listen, friends, if we are almost saved, we are still completely lost. What, what a tragedy to be so close and yet so far. And friends, why does God do this, people ask? Why does God resurrect the wicked at the end of time when they're already dead? Why not just let them be dead? Why does He show them the glory of heaven? And the glories of what they are missing out on, is God just trying to rub it in their face? No. God is not cruel. 
The reason why he resurrects the wicked at the end of the thousand years, just before they're eradicated from the universe, is because many people who come up in the second resurrection will be thinking that it's the first resurrection. And they're going to realize and they're going to be shocked to realize that they have been sleeping a thousand years too long. There are going to be some people who come up in that second resurrection thinking it's the first, and now it dawns upon them, I'm lost, and they're going to be wondering why, and they're going to say in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't I done many wonderful works in your name? Lord, Lord, haven't I prophesied in your name? Haven't I cast out devils in your name? Lord, I, I was a good person, Lord. I did this and that. I gave to the poor. I led out in community service. I, I preached your word even. Lord, how can I be lost? Oh, friends, what a tragedy to think we're all right when we're all wrong. These individuals deceive themselves. The greatest deception is self-deception, friends. We can be like Peter who said to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready. Everyone else is going to leave you tonight, but I will never leave you. I will go to death with you tonight. Oh, yes, Lord, I'm ready. But before the night was finished, Peter denied Christ three times. Peter did not even know his own heart. These individuals were confident in their own commitment, their own righteousness. And so at the end of the thousand years, they are questioning the judgment of God. Lord, Lord, why am I lost? And so God resurrects them. Why? To show them the record of their own life. To see the decisions that they made. And to see what was in their hearts that they ignored time and time again. And as the wicked examine and they see the record of their own life, the record will not only show all the compromises they made, every rationalizing thought and excuse they gave, but it will also show every opportunity God gave them. Every time someone prayed for them, it's going to be in the record. Every invitation they received, every time the Bible was sitting right there and the Holy Spirit uh, convicted them to pick it up, but they chose not to do it. Every opportunity will be seen there, and the wicked will see that God did absolutely everything he could to save them. And they're going to realize that, man, despite what God has done, I have chosen something else. And they will see the justice and the fairness of their destiny of being lost. And friends, in that moment will be fulfilled the words, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and that God is love. Everyone is going to bow down. The wicked are going to bow down, friends, and they're going to recognize, yes, God, you are a loving God. You did what you could. And I yet chose to be lost. I, I, I held on to this secret sin. I rationalized and I compromised. Lord, it's not your fault. You did everything you could. And they bow down, not because they're repentant, friends. It's a false repentance. They're not sorry for their sin. They're sorry for the results of sin, the penalty, the wages of sin, which is death. Their conscience has already been seared with the hot iron. They've already gone too far. The weight of their regret causes them to fall on their knees, but it's a, it's a counterfeit repentance. And then the wicked will realize that the sin they chose made them unfit to dwell in the presence of the perfect purity of Christ. They're eternally separated from the life giver. And in the midst of these dreadful, agonizing thoughts, seeing what they missed out on, seeing every top opportunity God gave, 
and seeing every petty sin and excuse they gave for not being there and realizing that that has separated me from the life giver for eternity in the midst of these agonizing thoughts. The Bible says that fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And friends, this is when hellfire begins to burn. Hell's not burning right now, friends, and somewhere in the middle of the earth. The Bible doesn't teach that hell is burning right now and the wicked are, are being tormented. No, friends. Hell fire begins to burn at the end of the thousand years, only after the wicked acknowledge the justice of their punishment. And friends, I want you to consider that the fire is going to, what is this word right here? Is going to devour them. It's not going to torment them throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. It's going to devour them. What does it mean to devour something? If I'm hungry, give me a plate of food, and I devour it, is there anything left? To devour something means it's completely gone. And that's what the fire is going to do, friends. It's going to completely annihilate or eradicate or destroy the wicked. And friends, the Bible calls this fire, it says this is the what kind of death? Second death. Remember, friends, the second death is, the, is, is a permanent death. It's a death without any hope of a resurrection. And the Bible tells us that Satan himself is going to die this death. Notice in Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. The lake of fire is going to burn on the top part of the earth, and all the wicked, including Satan, is going to be destroyed by this fire. You see, friends, for every truth that God has, Satan has a what? So too with the, the topic of hell. There's a true teaching about hell in the Bible, but there's a counterfeit teaching that many, many Christians believe in that's not found in the Bible. And the popular teaching of hell today is people think that Satan is the superintendent of hell, and God somehow employs him to torture sinners and, wicked, and the wicked throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity without ever experiencing any relief. But friends, Satan is not going to be the superintendent of hell. He's going to be destroyed in the fire. In fact, notice what it says in Ezekiel 28, verse 18 and 19. Write it down. Talking about Satan, it says, I will bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, and I will bring thee to what? <clears throat> Ashes upon the where? Earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And what's the fate of Satan? Never shalt thou be any more. The Bible is clear, friends, that Satan is going to be destroyed. He's going to be wiped out or eradicated, annihilated, and he's not going to be anymore. A fire will come from the midst of him, and it will turn him to ashes. That's what's going to happen to Satan. You see, friends, when, when we talk about the destruction of the wicked and hellfire, we have to understand that hell is not fire. Every time, or most of the time, you find the word hell in the Bible, it simply refers to the grave. In the Old Testament, it's the word sheol, which means the grave. The New Testament word Hades also means the grave. You see, the, hell is, is not so much a, a fire, but hell is eternal separation from our Creator. Here's what hell is, friends. Hell is seeing the glories of heaven that God wanted you to have, seeing every opportunity God gave you to, to receive it, and then seeing every petty thing you allowed to get in the way of you and Jesus, 
and then realizing that those things have separated you eternally from God. <coughs> that mental agony is going to be all-consuming, friends. That mental anguish is the experience of hell. And the fire that comes down to devour the wicked, listen, friends, that fire is a sweet release of the mental anguish that the wicked will experience when they realize that they are eternally separated from their Creator. The fire is like putting them out of their misery. It's a sweet release. And let me tell you, friends, God is not going to rejoice. He's not, he's not going to say, there you go. No, friends. God is going to weep bitterly. He's going to weep, friends, at the destruction of the wicked. In fact, notice what the Bible says. Write it down. Ezekiel 18, 32. The Bible says, For I have no pleasure. How much pleasure? No pleasure in the death of him that dies, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. This is one of the verses in the Bible where you can actually hear God crying. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies. Therefore, turn and live. God is pleading with us, friends. He's not willing that any should perish, but rather that all would come to repentance. But we will choose our own destiny, and God will never force anyone to be saved. If we want to be lost, that's your choice but it's going to hurt and it's going to break the heart of God. Now, friends, many people ask, well, how long will the wicked burn? I usually have a whole presentation on this. Unfortunately, we don't have enough nights to share that presentation. If you want to borrow the DVD, you're more than welcome to. The title of, of my Hell's Fire sermon, it's entitled The Unquenchable Love. But let me give you the short version right now. How long will the wicked burn? Or well, notice what it says. In Jude verse 7, it says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth as a what? So the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are an example suffering the vengeance of what kind of fire? Eternal fire. And friends, when we read this surfacely, it seems like it's an ever-burning, never-ending, tormenting hell. But friends, here's the question you, you need to ask. If the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of eternal fire, tell me, did Sodom and Gomorrah burn, yes or no? Yes, but are they still, are those cities still burning right now? No, friends, and yet they experienced the vengeance of eternal fire. Well, then what happened to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? The Bible interprets itself. 2 Peter 2.6 and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them with an overflow, making them an example unto those who after should live ungodly. Friends, Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities experience eternal fire, but they're not burning still today. They did burn until there was nothing left but ashes. And once they were turned to ashes, they are eternally annihilated and forever eradicated from the universe. That's what eternal fire is. It's not a fire that continues to burn and you're there experiencing and you never turn to ashes. No, it says that they are turned to ashes. In fact, notice another one. In the book of Malachi, there are so many verses we can share, but we don't have the time. Malachi 4 verse 1 tells us, 
For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them what? Neither root nor branch. When, you're, when it's burnt up, there's no branch, there's no root. It's con completely consumed or devoured. Yes, there's going to be fire, friends. But listen, the fire is not so much a punishing agent. The fire is a purifying agent. It's to eradicate evil from God's, from God's universe. In fact, notice in verse 3, it says, And you, talking about the righteous, you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be what? The wicked shall be what? Ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. So yes, friends, the wicked are going to be burned, but they're going to be burned until there's ashes, until there's nothing left. And when they're burnt to ashes, they are eternally eradicated, completely annihilated and destroyed forever throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Notice another one. In Psalms 37 verse 20, it says, But the wicked shall what? not be tormented forever. It says the wicked shall perish. There's the finality to that word. And the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke, shall they consume away. They're going to burn into the nothing left but ashes and smoke. And what happens when the smoke clears? Obadiah chapter 1 and verse 16 tells us that the wicked, it says, they shall be as though they had what? Never been. That's the fate of Satan and the fate of the wicked. They're eradicated from the universe. They're going to be burnt up until there's nothing left but ashes. So what is eternal about it? It's the results that are eternal. They're eternally gone, eternally eradicated. Now, some of you might be wondering, but what does the Bible, what does it mean then when it says forever and ever? The smoke of their torment shall ascend forever and ever, forever and ever. The Bible does use the expression forever and ever. But friends, I want you to consider that the expression forever is used over 56 times in the Bible in conjunction or connection with things that are already ended. In other words, whenever you read forever and ever in the Bible, it does not always mean an unending duration of time. Because over 56 times, it's used in connection with something that's finished. And let me give you one example of that. In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22, it says, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and I will bring him that he may appear the Lord and abide there how long? How long? So this is talking about Hannah, who brought Samuel to the temple of God. She said, I'm going to bring them, and he's going to stay there forever. But friends, is Samuel still at that temple today? But it says forever, but he's not there now. Well, what does it mean then, forever? Verse 28 gives us the answer. Notice, same chapter, verse, and verse 28. Therefore also have I lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So friends, forever is equivalent to as long as he lives. And so to the wicked are going to burn forever and ever. What does that mean? As long as they live, they're going to be consumed. Because remember, friends, the soul does not have immortality. You see, the false doctrine of eternal torment that most Christian churches teach and believe today, where they say that you're going to burn in hell forever and you'll not experience any relief, that false doctrine is actually rooted in Greek Hellenistic philosophy. 
It was the Greeks that invented that, 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 that believed this. And the reason why is because they believed in the doctrine of the immortal soul. So friends, think about it. If you put an immortal soul, a soul that cannot die, if you put an immortal soul in fire, what do you have? You have eternal torment. But as we studied last night, the soul is not immortal. We are all subject to death. And so the fire is not going to torment the wicked, but rather it's going to consume the wicked. It's going to destroy them completely and eradicate their existence from the universe. In fact, notice, the Bible says that the fire is eternal, not the wicked. It says eternal fire. And friends, why is the fire eternal? Because guess what the fire represents? The fire is none other than God himself. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, it says, For our God is a what? Consuming fire. A consuming fire. So how long has God been consuming fire? God is eternal, friends. And His presence is so pure that it is like fire that consumes things that are not pure. In fact, notice another one. In the book of Exodus 24, verse 17, it says, and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like what? Devouring fire. The glory of God is like devouring fire. Notice another one. Please write it down. In Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, For I, says the Lord, will be unto her a what? Wall of fire round about, and I will be the glory in the midst of her. You see, you remember the pillar of fire that led the children of Israel by night? That represents the glory and character of God. And that fire protected God's people from the wicked, but it preserved his own people. You see, friends, the fire is eternal, not the wicked. And the reason why the fire is eternal is because it represents the glory of God. And so who is going to dwell in the eternal fire of God's presence? I want you to notice this verse. In Isaiah 33, verse 14 and 15, it says, Who among us shall dwell with what? Devouring fire. Who among us shall dwell with what kind of burning? Everlasting burnings. So who's going to be in the everlasting burning, the devouring fire? Notice the answer, friends. It's not the wicked. It's the righteous. It says, he that walks how? Righteously and speaks uprightly. Who is going to dwell in the presence of God forever and not be burned by that presence? It's the righteous, friends. We're going to be in the presence of the fire of God. We're going to see him face to face, but we're not going to be burned by that fire. Why? Because we've been baptized in fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit. You see, the wicked are going to be burnt up in that fire. They're not going to be able to handle it. In fact, notice another one. In Isaiah 43, verse 2, you see, most people think that the wicked are going to be in the fire forever. But friends, you realize it's the exact opposite. It's the righteous that's going to be in the fire forever, the fire of God's presence, but they're not going to be consumed by it. Notice what it says in Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. The righteous will walk through the fire of God's presence. They're not going to be burned. Why? Because they are on fire with the love of Christ. They have been purified by the fire of God's presence from sin. And because they have been purified from sin by the blood of Jesus and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, now they are fit to dwell in the literal fire of God's presence. And they're not going to be consumed by it. 
just like the three Hebrew boys. You remember the story, the three Hebrew boys? They were thrown into the fire, but were they burnt by it? Well, let me ask you this. Were they raptured out of the fire? They weren't raptured out of the fire, friends. They were in the fire, but they were not burned by the fire because who was with them in the fire? Jesus was with them in the fire. But guess what? The fire, who did the fire destroy? It destroyed the Babylonians that threw them in. Here's a picture of what hell is, friends. The fire of God's presence will consume the wicked, but it will preserve the righteous. Amen? Does that make sense? Friends, it's amazing how Satan has just flipped it. You realize that? He's just flipped it. He has caused the entire, almost the entire Christian world to think that it's the wicked that are going to be in the fire of God's presence and not be consumed by it. They're going to be tormented forever. But we find, according to the Bible, that it's the exact opposite. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, what about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? What about everlasting punishment? What about forever and ever? And remember what we said the other night. There are a few verses that may seem to indicate the opposite. But listen, if you have 50 scriptures saying something very clearly and five or six six scriptures saying something different, are you going to build your doctrine upon the five or six scriptures? No, you're going to see what the entire Bible says, the weight of evidence. And then you'll compare those few scriptures that seem to say something different in light of the weight of evidence. And when we study contextually, line by line, we see that the Bible is in complete harmony with itself. And so we don't have the time to go through all of those, but the handout tonight will explain every single one of those verses. It explains the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that that is a parable, friends, not meant to be taken literally. The Bible is clear. And so we find that the fire is not so much a punishing agent, it's a purifying agent. It consumes sin, but it preserves the righteous forever. And so let me ask you a question. How many of you want to dwell in the everlasting fire of God's presence? Some of you thought you'd never say that. (laughs) Amen? But that's what the Bible teaches, friends. And so, that's the short version. If you need the long version, feel free to borrow the DVD. We have a whole presentation on it. We don't have the time to share tonight. But friends, as we wind this down to a close, the fire is going to burn at the end of the 1,000 years. That's when sin is going to be eradicated. Only after God's name is exonerated and his character vindicated and Satan proven a liar. And friends, notice what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. Notice what it says. The heavens and earth shall pass with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be what? So what's going to be burnt up? the earth, friends. When is the earth going to burn? At the end of the thousand years. And then it says in verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. In other words, after this world is, is, is consumed by fire, out of the ashes of the old world, God will create a new heavens and a new earth. And then will be fulfilled the words of Jesus, blessed are the meek, for the meek shall inherit the earth. You see, my friends, the first thousand years in heaven, that's the honeymoon. The new earth is happily ever after with Jesus. It's a love story, friends, between Christ and his bride. And some of you might be wondering, well, if my loved one is not there, am I going to cry forever? If my spouse is missing, if my child is not there, is my heart going to be broken forever? Not at all, friends, because it's then will be fulfilled the words of Revelation 21.4, and God 
shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Let's read the rest of it together. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. You see, we might shed a few tears during the thousand years, but at the end of the thousand years, when all the questions have been answered and the record has revealed God's fairness, justice, and mercy, when the wicked are finally destroyed, God will wipe away all those tears, and we're never going to cry again, friends. There'll be more, no more death, no sorrow, no sadness, no more pain. When, the, when, when that happens, it's going to be all right, friends. If this message was clear, we can see the love of God shining so beautifully to us. Jesus is coming soon, friends. Soon the sky is going to split open. Soon the devil will be thrown into jail. Soon and very soon the wicked will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. And soon and very soon the saints will go marching into the kingdom. And I want to be ready. How about you? And so as we get ready to close tonight, friends, the question I ask you is which side of the wall are you going to be on? On the inside looking out or on the outside looking in? Where are you going to be during the thousand years? Are you going to be dead with Satan here in this world or are you going to be in the kingdom with Jesus? I want to be with Jesus. Do you want to be with Jesus? If so, let me hear you say amen. amen. But friends, listen, it's so easy to say amen. But does your life say amen? Do your actions say amen? Do the daily choices you make say amen? Yes, God, I want to be with you. Or are there things in your life that is more important to you than God? Friends, the only way we can be in the kingdom is because Jesus left the kingdom. And I want you to notice what Christ experienced when he left the New Jerusalem. He came to die an excruciating, agonizing death on the cross for you and me. But friends, where did Jesus die in relation to the city of Jerusalem? Did he die on the inside or on the outside? Jesus died on the outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Out, out on Mount Calvary, an old rugged cross, Jesus laid down his life. And friends, do you know what death he died when he laid down? Did he die the first death or did he die the second death? Well, to answer that, you just have to ask, did Jesus pay the full wages of our sins? Did he, yes or no? He paid it all, friends. He paid the full wages of sin. And what is the full wages of sin? The wages of sin is death. But what kind of death? A first or a second death? The second death. Notice what it says in Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is what? But the gift of God is what kind of life? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. <laughs> you see, in this passage, Paul is making several contrasts. He's contrasting wages with the gift. He's contrasting sin with Jesus. And he's contrasting death with life. But what is the gift? It's eternal life. And if the gift is eternal life, then the wages must be, in contrast, not a temporal first death, but a permanent eternal death. A death without any hope of a resurrection. 
That's the death that the wicked will die at the end of the thousand years. And that's the same death Jesus died. And some of you are wondering, how could that be if Jesus resurrected? Well, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus know that he was going to resurrect before he went to the cross? Yes or no? Yes, he said, the third day I'll rise again. But who told him that he would rise again? Who gave him the promise of the resurrection? Jesus said, I speak nothing of myself, but whatever the Father tells me is what I speak. So it was the Father that gave him the assurance of the resurrection. But listen, in the Garden of Gethsemane, for the first time in eternity, Jesus was separated from his Father. As the weight of the world's sin was laid upon Christ, my sin and your sin was so heavy that it was literally crushing the life out of Christ. So heavy that Jesus prayed, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The Father was withdrawing the, His presence from the Son because sin separates us from God. And Jesus knew that He would be separated from the Father, but He did not know that experientially. And this is the first time in eternity that the Father is, feels so far away. And Jesus, in that moment, was tasting eternal death, <clears throat> tasting eternal separation. And on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou what? You see, because of our sins, the Father had to forsake the Son. He had to turn away his face. And friends, think about it. If I give you a promise, and then I who gave the promise forsake you or seemingly turn my back on you, where's the promise? It's gone. It's gone. And that's how Jesus felt, friends. Before the cross, yes, I'm going to rise the third day, but during that experience, where is the promise? Jesus could not see beyond the portals of the tomb. It was a, he was dying an eternal death. He was paying our debt in full. And it wasn't the physical pain that was so difficult. It was the mental agony of being rejected by his children and forsaken by his father. That was the torment of Christ on the cross. So painful the mental agony was that the physical pain was hardly felt. He was experiencing what hell is like, eternal separation. And so what we see here is absolutely amazing, friends. It's amazing. We see that the loving God is tasting the essence of hell. And what we see is that Jesus would rather go to hell for you than to live in heaven without you. Wow. He would rather go to hell for you to die an eternal, permanent death rather than live in heaven without you. Why? Because, friends, while on the cross, he could have come down and said, forget it, it's too much of a price. Let me go back to my Father. Let the human race perish for their own sins. Jesus could have done that. He could have left us in our sins. He could have forsaken us, but he didn't, friends, because while he was on the cross, we were on his mind. 
And so rather than saving himself, he chose to save us. What wondrous love is this? Who are you and who am I that God would feel that we were worth that sacrifice? And even though he did resurrect, friends, why did he resurrect if he paid the full wages of sin? He resurrected because he was innocent. But yet the experience of the cross was the experience of a second death. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. He was rejected so that we can be accepted. He was condemned so that we could be pardoned. He was whipped and beaten so that we could be blessed and restored. He was cut off so that we could be reconciled back to God. Christ was treated as we deserve so that we might be treated as He deserved. He suffered the death that was ours so that we could live the life that was His. And with His stripes, we are healed. And friends, listen, Jesus died on the outside of the city of Jerusalem. He died on the outside of the walls. Why? So that we could live on the inside of the new Jerusalem. He died on the outside of the walls so that we could live on the inside of the wall. Oh, my loving brother, when this world is on fire, don't you want God's bosom to be your pillow? How many of you are thankful for Jesus tonight? How many of you want to give your life to Jesus tonight fully? Oh, my friends, I appeal to you on behalf of Christ. Don't withhold anything from God. Don't give Him half your heart or 99%. We must surrender everything to Jesus because He surrendered everything for us. And as your heads are bowed and as your eyes are closed, oh dear Lord, as we make this invitation, give your people courage to stand and respond. And as your heads are bowed and as your eyes are closed, as your heart is open to God in prayer, I want to make a special invitation to you tonight. I know that many of us have already made decisions to follow Jesus, and Jesus is already our Lord and Savior. But I know that there are some individuals here tonight that have not yet made that decision. That perhaps you've surrendered part of your life to God, but not your whole life. And tonight you've been broken by His love. You recognize that Jesus gave all for you. And you want to respond by giving your whole heart to Him. And you want to stand and say, yes, Lord, I'm surrendering my life to you. And I want to go all the way in preparation, even for baptism in the near future. Is there someone here like that? I know there is. And if you are making that decision, I invite you to stand to your feet where you are. God bless you, my brother and sister. God bless you. These are for those who are saying, yes, Lord, I am making a decision to follow you all the way. And I want to, I want to be baptized or rebaptized. I want to know what that means. God bless you. God bless you. I want to invite those who, who are standing, those who are responding. If you just slip out of your seats and come down to the front, would you? I want to have a special prayer with you. And I want to congratulate you and confirm you in this wonderful decision. If you're making a decision for baptism or rebaptism, we're going to study that on a later night, but, but you already are, are preparing. God bless you. God bless you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Is there someone else who would like to come and say yes to Jesus? Is there someone else who's still sitting who wants to respond and say yes? I need special prayer. I want courage to follow Jesus in baptism. God bless you folks. Now for the rest of us, I assume that all those who are still in their seats have already been baptized. You've already made a decision. Praise God. But if you have not made that decision, don't let anything hold you back. God bless you, my brother. You're making the best decision of your life. Jesus died for you. Won't you come and live for him? Now for the rest of us, if you want to be committed to Christ, I invite you to stand where you are as we close with prayer. Want to be committed to Christ? Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for your love. Lord, we have seen you tonight more clearly than ever before. And we thank you, dear God, for loving us so much. Oh God, how could you love us so much? After all the pain we've caused you, after how many times we have hurt you, we've left you hanging on the cross, and yet you love us still. Lord, all we can do is say thank you. And those words are so frail and so inadequate to really express the gratitude of our hearts. Tonight, Lord, we stand wanting to be committed to you. Lord, I want to pray especially for those who've come to the front, these who have taken it even a step further and are desiring baptism in the near future. Lord, please bless them. Write their name in the book of life. I pray that you'll seal this decision in heaven's record. And I pray, Lord, that you would help these to never turn back. Keep them strong. Keep them focused. And I pray that tonight would truly be the beginning of eternity for them. Bless them in their struggles, in their challenges. I pray that you would give them strong faith to stand firm for Jesus. Thank you for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.